And it goes on and says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a cloud of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him in the, of the purple cloak, put on his own clothes, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So the main thing I want us to understand here is that the value of Jesus is often dismissed for the perceived benefits of Jesus. The value of Jesus is often dismissed for the perceived benefits of Jesus. And in this moment, these guards did not value Jesus. They did not see him for who he was. Therefore, the benefits to them were for them to once again be able to have an outlet for their cruelty. To take out upon this human being shameful and horrific deeds. But I want to focus on the value of Jesus as it's being dismissed. What we value we care for. What we value, we invest in. What we value, we believe in. We worship what we value. We dismiss what we don't value. I have a bad history when it comes to golf carts. I have flipped three golf carts. Three. Three different times. Three different places. One was on a golf course. The first time I flipped it, actually, I wasn't being just rough for rough's sake. I was driving at a golf course, and I started, I was with a friend, my first time ever to play golf. I'd maybe been to a driving range once before, and so I was on the golf course with the golf cart, and my friend Chris was with me. I was playing drums with the worship leader and, uh, in Oklahoma City, and so I felt kind of big time. I was traveling, got paid a little bit to play drums, and so he took us golfing, and I hit the ball, unsurprisingly, like way off to the left, like way out there, and so he's like, hey, let's go get it, and there was this huge hill to go down, and so we started going down this hill, and I was like, hey, let's take it at an angle, because maybe it'll slow it down a little bit. Problem is, I never took physics in high school, and so we started going down this hill at an angle, and they were like, whoa, 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 flip, flip twice, seat flies off, battery comes out, roof is all bent in, and so we, we put the parts on it, we make sure we're not dead, when we realize we're not dead, we take it and we push it under behind this tree in these bushes and start bending out the, the roof, which was still all janky, and it started bending it out and putting the battery back in and, and trying to figure it out, and we went and played the rest of our game, but it was a mess. The other two times, um, we were, I was speaking at a youth camp, I was the speaker, and we were playing uh, airsoft guns, I don't know if they're still big or not, but they were pretty big about 10 years ago, we had airsoft guns, and we were on golf carts. Now... The golf cart place that we rented from was a friend of the guy who put on the camp, and so they said, hey, don't worry about it. These things are insured. <laughs> and so we had very little regard for the golf carts. Taking a sharp curve in the middle of a gravel parking lot, we started sliding out, fishtailing. I had my intern with me on this one. Flipped the golf cart over, scuffed his brand new white K-Swiss. He might have said something not too godly. I was all scratched up, scraped up. I still have like a, a swollen part on my shin today of, of scar tissue from golf cart number two. Golf cart number three was a similar thing, same camp, second year. Same game. Didn't learn the lesson. Took another sharp turn, this time on some wet grass onto the concrete, and it flipped over. 
The fourth incident with the golf cart was not flipping a golf cart. I thought it would be funny to take the golf cart around the side of the building, sit in the middle and drive like this with my right, hand, my, my right leg over my left. Problem was I couldn't reach the brake. And so there's these two metal doors going into the auditorium. I couldn't hit the brake. I slammed into these metal doors. $1,500 later that I paid, $1,500 later, they put these brand new metal doors up and then switched them out for new glass ones two years later. We didn't have any respect or value for those. You hear people all the time that get the insurance on their rental cars and they drive them crazily and everything else. What we value, we protect. What we value, we believe in. What we value and we hope in. And we didn't value those things. And so here with Jesus, they had no regard for who he was. They didn't value him for what he was. The only benefit to them in that moment was allowing them to do their sadistic behavior of ripping into his flesh and beating him down, letting, have, having their way. And, and really, when they said they called to them together the whole battalion, it was likely a portion of the battalion, two to 300 people around this guy, taking licks at him, mocking him, bending their knee toward him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They had no regard for him. They had no value for him. Therefore, they dismissed him, they used him, they abused him, and they ignored him. In one of the gospel accounts, this is when Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He could have right there called down the wrath of God. He could have right then brought justice in, in a, in a a legion of angels to come and destroy every single being. He could have destroyed them, but instead he was being shamed and mocked and beaten and torn down. The humiliation of Jesus illustrates the ongoing devaluing of Jesus. There's this devaluation that took place. And to an extent, his disciples did not value him. They devalued him. But to this extent, these guards, they had no regard If you want to know what you believe, then let me ask you, what do you value? Do you value your reputation? Do you value your gratification and pleasure? Do you value your happiness? Success, money, possession. I can go on and on. Honestly, looking at your life, not spinning it in any sort of way, no PR game, but what is it that you value? Because what you value, that's really where your belief lies. Valuing something exposes belief. And so the humiliation of Jesus ultimately is a devaluing of Jesus, which exposes unbelief, the minimization of him, which begs the question as we come face to face to this, because listen, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you have to deal with the fact that this was a historical event and that this brutality took place on this man. And you have to ultimately deal with the question, whether you want to or not, the question is, who is Jesus? Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the payment for sin. He claimed to be the sacrificial lamb that was the Passover lamb for all who would believe. And so when we look at the brutality done to Jesus, devaluing of Jesus in a very clear way, it provokes us and compels us to ask that question. What do we believe about Jesus? 
Do we believe that he is who he says he is? And if we believe that, are, are we valuing him in such regard? I don't know about you, I have a tendency to take advantage or take for granted those that I can see. Whether my wife or my children or my coworkers or my friends, I have a tendency to not pay much mind to that. I'm, I'm actually a situationally considerate person. There are certain situations that I'm super considerate about. Other things, I just blow it. Like if Facebook wasn't telling me it's your birthday, wouldn't know. And quite honestly, I try to have some days where I'm not on Facebook, so if you don't get a happy birthday from me, I'm not mad at you. Just wasn't on Facebook that day. But what we value, the things that we, we value, we consider. What we consider, we believe in. What we believe in, it, it, it does something in us, and it does something to us, and it does something for us. But that begs the question, then, if, if Jesus is who he says he is, and I will go ahead and answer that, he is. But since he is who he says he is, we have to ask ourselves a question, then what gospel are we preaching? Because here's the reality. All creation is proclaiming a gospel, some sort of message of good news. But the question we must answer is, what gospel does my life preach? Beginning in our homes, in the workplace, in other relationships, on the freeway during rush hour? What gospel is my life preaching? What am I believing for my hope? What am I believing will bring me satisfaction? What am I believing in to bring me fulfillment? What am I valuing? See, these men, as they took Jesus and they put this purple cloak, and it may have been a scarlet-colored cloak, we don't know for certain, but they, they took something that looked royal and regal, put it upon him, gave him some sort of scepter that they would hit him with, put a crown of thorns smushed on his head as a mockery of him, hailing him. Here comes the king of the Jews. The irony is thick. His bruised and beaten body is torn open flesh, laying bare before them, them bowing down and mocking him. All the while, they should be bowing their knees. So we must understand, if we're looking at this moment in time, if we're looking at this narrative in Jesus' path towards the cross, we might be prone to wonder and question, where was the Father? Where was God when this was happening? Which leads me to my second point, that nothing happens to Jesus that is outside of the Father's will. Nothing. As it says in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, when Isaiah is prophesying about the suffering servant, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
So the very thing that we are witnessing in this stage of the story, the brutality being done to Jesus, was the exact means by which God would be both just and justifier. It's that means by which God would reveal the horrendous nature of our sin and depravity, and that it would expose the wrath of God that is deserved both physically and spiritually in that moment of isolation and alienation and loneliness and scourging and beating and mocking. In that moment, God was working and doing what he had promised to do, forging a way for you and I to be rescued from our sin, which leads to death that is deserving not only of that horrendous wrath, but much, much more. Later on, Isaiah says, for it pleased God to crush him. Why? We've talked about before having our pet sins, the certain sin that we love, that we nurture, that we protect, that we justify, that we minimize. And in that moment when we're valuing things that are clearly not good for us or good for others and offensive to God, we, we justify them so that we can enjoy them at the expense of joyfully obeying God. I'm guilty of that. And so while I, I would prefer to run through this portion of Scripture. This portion of Scripture brings to us the opportunity for an appreciation and gratitude that actually compels us to a place of deeper belief and deeper joy in the midst of obedience. And so I want to unpack that for you. Because in this moment, Jesus was taking, in another word to put, was absorbing the beating, the wrath, and the chastisement that we deserve as our substitute. And he's receiving this punishment so that we could then be forgiven. You hear me quote this verse a lot. It's one of the memory verses songs that we sing in my house, 2 Corinthians 5.21, to understand the significance of the brutality leading to the point of the cross, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. We have to understand the why. Why would God do this? Verse 21 in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul puts it this way, for our sake... He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Some of you here are toiling for righteousness. Some of you are believing that your right acts, your right beliefs, being a good person is what makes you right before God. The prophet Isaiah says, for but our, our good deeds are but filthy rags compared to the Lord. And in those moments that we are striving to try to make ourselves right with God or applauding ourselves for our good behavior, we're then standing right there with these guards scourging Christ as well. Devaluing, diminishing, and ignoring what he endured so that we do not have to. God made him to become sin. The illustration of that sin in this brutality towards Jesus exposes, reveals this moral need that we have. But God made him to be sin who is innocent. Why? So that you and I and whoever will believe 
will be right before God. third thing we can take from this passage is that Jesus is not meant to be taken in parts, but received and trusted entirely. He's not meant to be taken in bits and pieces that we like. He's not a spiritual buffet to be consumed. He's a king given for our affections and our attention and for our liberty and for our righteousness. And it's very easy in this moment of preaching a passage like this to begin to, to heap onto you. Therefore, you should do. You should do this and do that, not do this and not do that. Our actions are symptoms of what we're believing. And so the issue, the goal of this is right belief, righteousness before God, not just right behavior. Right behavior comes from right belief. But what most people are believing is that right behavior covers wrong belief. Being a good person covers minimization of Jesus. Doing other good things will pay off the bad things. But that is a devaluation of Jesus. He must not be, he's not meant to be taken in parts. He's received and trusted entirely. He's meant to be worshipped not just on Sunday in community group night, but daily. And as Jesus is leading out this way, enduring this suffering, taking this beating, being mocked, being isolated, being completely alone, he warned his disciples of this before. He told them, hey, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be killed, and then I'll rise again. He told them that multiple times. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus, after Peter and he had a confrontation because Peter was like, you're the Christ, and then Jesus told him what it meant, and Peter was like, no, I don't, I don't want that. Jesus makes this invitation. This is the invitation of Jesus, the brutally beaten, crucified, abandoned, wrath-absorbing Jesus. This is the invitation. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Here's what Jesus says. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You want to follow Jesus, it's not just go to church, be nicer, give some money, do Bible studies, listen to mediocre music, and then you're saved. Following Jesus is denying yourself. And denying yourself isn't self-hatred. Guess what? Self-hatred's still pride. It's still self-absorption. It's still focusing on yourself. Denying yourself is the miracle of being liberated from the mirror back to Christ. 
Going all in on the person and work of Jesus. Going all in, understanding that even on our best day, spiritual bankruptcy is ours without Christ. Denying yourself. Take up your cross. Taking up your cross isn't taking up the cross of Christ. Taking up your cross is dying to your kingdom and submitting to Christ's. And he gives this word an ongoing and follow me. Follow me. Follow me. He warns his disciples later in Mark that they will be taken before councils. They will be martyred. They will be killed. And that the Spirit of God will give them words to say that, that God's Spirit will be the power provider and sustainer through it all. And God's power was Jesus' power and sustainer through this. But as he endures the beating, he beckons us to come and die. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It doesn't. It gains nothing. Yet what we value, we believe in. So rather than preaching points of guilt or trying to be the Holy Spirit, point out all the sins, because I can go through sins. I know, I know sins a lot of you struggle with. I want to ask you some questions. And I want you to be honest with yourself, and if you speak with your family, or community group, or accountability partners, or prayer friends, or whoever. First question I would ask is this. Do you value Jesus based upon who he is, or what he can do for you? Do you value Jesus based upon who he is, or what it is that he can do for you? Who he is, is enough. However, most of us have a very transactional relationship with Jesus. If we have a good day, we love Jesus. If we have a bad day, where has he gone? If things go our way, he is for us. If they don't go our way, he is against us. That is transactional. That is not faith based upon the person of Jesus. It's faith based upon evidences of Jesus through him doing our will rather than us submitting to his will. But we have to be honest. In order to repent, change our thinking, live differently, we must come and ask these honest questions. Do I value Jesus based upon who he is? Or do I value him based upon what he can do for me? If following Jesus is just so that you don't go to hell, you have a very small faith. Following Jesus because he is the Son of God, the promised one of God, the rescuer of God, will be, bring power that not only liberates you from sin, but gives you the opportunity to value him more than you value the immediate pleasure of sin. Another question for you, where are you knowingly mocking or rejecting the commands of Jesus? Where are you knowingly mocking or rejecting the commands of Jesus? 
For some, it's external. For some, it's internal. And for some of you, you're like, man, I, I don't feel like I am. And I'm not saying it's an overt spitting and beating and lashing. But as we walk in disobedience, we don't experience the joy and the power that was ours to enjoy. Another way to think about it is, where am I devaluing or struggling with unbelief? You're like, yeah, I like that one better because it's not as cutting. Some of you I know do better with just directness, like you are rebelling against Christ and mocking him with your life. It could be the way that you interact with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It could be the way that you raise your children. It could be the way that you flippantly go through life treating Jesus like some sort of spiritual genie that gives you the stuff you want if, if you rub his belly right. It's easy to look at those guards and blame those guards and look down on those guards, but rather we who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good often live our lives in a way that is not just disobedient, but just flat out mocking him. And I can think of a few things in my life. It could be in the area of your marriage or with your children, your work, your finances, addictions. And where is Jesus calling you to trust him and follow him? Maybe it's with your kids. I love my girls. If you know me, I'm protective of my girls. But the greatest illustration for what I understand of biblical parenting is like a bowling alley with bumpers. That's why I feel like as a parent, like, the minimum viable product is how do you keep your kids from going in the gutter? My family, we like to go bowling. We're not good at it. Some of our friends here know that. My wife, though, when she has the bumpers up, she doesn't use them usually. But it knows that there's, there are boundaries there. And so when I love my daughters, and, and, and the goal is to get them down the alley to faithfulness with Jesus and walking with God and to, to try to protect and provide, but ultimately, they're not mine. They are not mine. Your kids are not yours. And I've used this illustration before, but it's amazing to me how Christian, really godly parents become functional atheists when it comes to the future of their children. God is going to provide for my kid, but only if they do this, 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 and this, in this timing, in this order, at this pace. Where is Jesus calling you to trust him and to follow him? For some of you, God's calling you to full-time ministry. And for some of you, you've made a bargain with God when financially it's prudent, you'll do it. I'm not saying be reckless financially, but I am articulating that if you're waiting to be able to afford to do ministry, you'll probably wait too long. What we value, we're grateful for. What we're grateful for we're willing to obey what we're willing to obey. It's our worship. So you have value that, that produces gratitude. When I read this story, I'm, I'm humbled by the fact that my sin, your sin, our sin contributed to the brutality that he must endure on the road to the cross. I'm saddened. 
But then at the same time, it produces within me gratitude. Oh God, thank you. Thank you that you endured that so that through your death and the brutality you endured, I don't have to pay for my sin. I don't have to endure not only physical wrath, but emotional, spiritual, eternal wrath because of what Christ has accomplished. And the response, it cultivates his gratitude. And from that gratitude, then it aligns my heart and mind more towards obedience and joy. Obedience isn't always easy. We don't like that word. But to do what we know is true and right, and to do so, experiencing joy through it. I tell a lot of guys I mentor, hey, a lot of times, obedience precedes joy. And our culture says, if you don't feel it, don't do it. You're missing out on a lot of joy, friends. Obedience, trusting God, valuing God, being grateful for God, is a journey of trusting and hoping in Christ, valuing Christ, because otherwise we will be people who Value Jesus based on what he can do for us rather than who he is. Because often the value of Jesus is dismissed for the perceived benefits of Jesus. Jesus is not something to be consumed or felt. He is someone to know. And he endured the physical and spiritual wrath of God so that you don't have to, so that you can know him and enjoy him. And if you're here this morning, you've never placed your hope and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, I'm glad you're here. And I want you to know that I'm not inviting you, the Bible's not inviting you to come be religious and do good things just to earn something or keep something. Jesus is saying, come and die so you can live. Come with your mess, come with your brokenness, come with your spiritual bankruptcy and say, I can't. And that's when Jesus shows up and says, well, good, I can. We want to be a people that treasure Christ, that love him and grow. When we're not, we can be honest about it and we can be encouraged by one another on how to grow in that. When we confront sin, we're viewing it rightly as something that robs us from joy in God and that is preventing us from the ultimate joy we're meant to have in Him. That we are created to know God and therefore enjoy God and by enjoying God, we obey God and through obedience of God, we enjoy God more. And as we ask ourselves these questions and as we reflect upon the faithfulness of Jesus in the midst of the unfaithfulness around him, we're invited to now come and follow him, to remain faithful when everyone else is faithless. By his help to hold on to the value that he brings and to the joy that he offers, so that as we know what it is he's calling us to, we can then walk joyfully in obedience. Friends, our, our, our faithfulness to the gospel in this area will not be found by us just out of duty trying harder for God. The effectiveness of the gospel ministry in this area will be permeating and penetrating from the overflow of joy we experience because of who he is.
It's in that joy that we're able to faithfully serve and to open our mouths and to share the gospel. I had one of you guys send me a text yesterday about sharing the gospel with your parents over several hours, opening the text, and there wasn't a great revival or anything like that last night. But he, he, he shared that and he said, who's next? And that's what we're going for, a brokenness for people who don't know Jesus yet. Not to make them right or make them just like us, but because only Christ can make them right. People who are far from God matter to God because God created them and he owns them. Therefore, God has the right to do whatever he pleases. And what he pleased to do was to send his son Jesus to live, die, and to rise again so that through Christ, people who are far from God can be adopted and brought near. And he finds joy in allowing us to be mouthpieces mouthpieces and midwives and spiritual tour guides. So he's not calling you just to come and believe, but to come and believe and obey because there's the joy. There's more joy to have. Let's pray.